The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III, and it is Leo season. Oh, my fucking God. Shut (laughs) up, Ira. It's been... Is it really Leo season now? As of what? This morning? No, it starts on the 23rd. See, you are so full of shit. I'm so mad. And you know why I'm extra mad? I finally flipped to July on our Keep It calendar. Why on earth does it say Leo season during July? That is so disrespectful to me. Y'all have August. You can have that. I don't care about August Leos. I'm so mad at you. Louis, are you an August Leo? I am. Mm. Uh, Uh, I would say I'm offended, except, of course, I don't give a shit about this. So... I'm Louis Bertel, by the way. Fire flying out of my fingers for Leo season or whatever. <laughs> Louis, you're so bitter, just like August Leo. <laughs> um, my name is Aida Osman, Eid Mubarak, my lovelies. It is Eid, and that's on Allah, bitch. Shit. <laughs> we all learned a lot just now. Okay. Yeah, I just want y'all to have that. Hold that. And by the way, it must be stated that Ira is taunting specifically me right now because he is wearing a zip-up pullover with Sarah Michelle Geller on it. First of all, I'm happy to always discuss Sarah Michelle Geller, but some of you at home pretended I said, like, death penalty to Sarah Michelle Geller. I did not say that. <laughs> Lewis put Sarah Michelle Geller in a conservatorship, is what he did. <laughs> and now we have to free SMG, and we got to kill Lewis. Oh, my God. The zip-up pullover, by the way, you look like Elizabeth Warren about to do yoga or something. <laughs> Where do you purchase this? Are you, like, Redbubble's, like, number one supporter? Where do you get this stuff at? I actually did not purchase this. Royce bought this for me for Christmas last year oh brilliant and i've never worn it and it's too worn to be wearing it now honestly but small price to pay to taunt lewis (laughs) yeah sweat sweat in spite of lewis that makes sense (laughs) bravely wearing your cardigan on the podcast where people can really appreciate it really thought this one through (laughs) they'll see it on snapchat okay oh that's true true. that's true and he baited you he knew damn well you would narrate what was going on so Mm -hmm. you know it's all part of the plan (laughs) yes welcome to my parlor said the spider to the fly (laughs) (laughs) i'm like the stage manager in our town i'll tell you what's going on Aida, aren't you in Miami now? I was just about to say, I'm reporting live from sticky, hot, humid, sexy Florida. Mm. And um, I wanted to ask you guys what your favorite Miami movie was. And don't say Moonlight. We already know you guys are gay. So <laughs> try <laughs> something Shit. else. Uh, <laughs> wow. Think on it. Well, for me, and this is going to speak to my generation. This isn't a movie. But the real world Miami is among the mm. more iconic seasons. Each person on the cast of that show was memorable in their own way, whether they were flipping out or, like, fiery. Mm. Um, Even the girl who skateboarded, like, they used to pick people on the real world who were, like, oddballs, but not in a performative way. And I really miss Mm. that era of reality TV. Mm. Well, leave it to Lewis to not answer the question. Great. Yeah, I was Uh, like, girl, that's not cinema. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I respect your taste. Uh, Mine is, 
You know, I think mine is the Miami Vice film by I Michael knew, Mann. I knew you were gonna say that. I knew it. I knew Listen, I am a maniac. Okay. Oh, I'm right. a maniac uh, oh, on the floor. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> Michael Sembello, okay, hello. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's your answer for that, Aida? Those are good answers. Those are good answers. I know I specified and asked you guys what your favorite Miami movie was, but for me, I'm going to uh, broaden the scope. I'm just doing a Florida film. Zola really did numbers. Zola did numbers for me. And Fuck both of y'all. You can't even answer your own <laughs> damn question. Yeah, fine, Why did you fine, ask fine, it? Fine, fine, fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say Moonlight. <laughs> Well, I will say this. Uh, the Birdcage is Miami, right? Here's the thing. I think all of the performances in The Birdcage are great, but I think the movie itself feels like a overlong sitcom episode. So that's mm. a three-star movie. Remember when I called Cruel Intentions a two-star movie last week? Yes. I want to get into the Leonard Malton universe of having four-star re- capsule reviews published in a book. So I'm starting here. Mm. Okay. Mm. That's fair. Yeah. With your two-star films? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Lewis's two-star films. Well, let's get on it. <laughs> nice. Scream 3. Yeah. Uh, hey! <laughs> now I'm coming right for Ira. <laughs> <laughs> the abuse that I've suffered. Um, speaking of films that are, you know, supposedly comedies, but really just feel like a long sitcom episode, uh, we are going to talk about the film nine to five today sure because the three of us um finally dipped into some of our cultural blind spots yes i Mm -hmm. saw three classic episodes of this rare art house television series called the simpsons Mm -hmm. we can all discuss (laughs) their weird arty ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i did see that at tribeca recently i thought it was really good so i got to it (laughs) um yeah i uh my blind spot being meryl streep guys please don't hurt me please don't hurt me just in general i think my first Meryl Streep movie was Florence Foster Jenkins. Whoa. So yeah. I'm so sorry. I know, I know. Criminal, right? <laughs> so that was my understanding of Miss Meryl. But I watched Death Becomes Her, and I'm very excited to rave. Great. We're going to get into our cultural blind spots. First, we're going to talk about Olivia Rodrigo at the White House. Yes. And also, we will be joined by author and podcaster Rebecca Carroll. So we'll be right back. Great news. The Cricket Store is having a fire sale. (laughs) Actually, we're having a massive summer sale. Now through July 31st, get up to 70% off your favorite Cricket items, including t-shirts, loungewear, koozies, summer drinkware, gifts, and more. This is the Nordstrom Rack of the Cricket Store. (laughs) Take it. We have things we don't want. We need you to take them. (laughs) As always, a portion of every order in the Crooked Store is donated to Vote Writers. So don't wait. Shop now through July 31st at crooked.com slash store. Last Wednesday, patron saint of Gen Z, Billboard chart topper, and the woman who will eventually kill Joshua Bassett. (laughs) (laughs) Olivia Rodrigo went to see Cool Uncle Joe at the White House to encourage young people to get vaccinated. But will they really listen to her? They don't even listen to their parents. I do love, like, the White House taking, like, a candy crane to Gen Z and just picking out one of the populars and just dangling them, like, please, please listen to one person. 
This is you. You <laughs> like this person, right? She does the ASMR. You're all into. Can I say something else about yeah. Olivia Rodrigo? A lot of the time, I write for Jimmy Kimmel. You have to make jokes about the teens or whatever, or TikTok or whatever. Mm-hmm. I really, when I am talking about that generation, now sound like I am in my mid fifties. Like my references to them are the same as what an older person's perception. Like I only know TikTok and Billie Eilish and ASMR. You <laughs> yeah, know, the- like I'm fully out of the loop. Fully out of the loop. Gen Z grab bag. I totally understand. Lewis, that. I don't think anyone who's listened to this podcast since it debuted is shocked that you sound like you're fifty. Well, <laughs> are the carpet just on TikTok? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they should be. The kids would learn something. See, now I sound now I sound like I'm 90. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis crawled out of his mother with gray hairs and a pension plan. Like, we already know that. It's okay. We still love him. Regardless. I loved Olivia doing this. I mean, it felt logical. It really did. It was time. Somebody had to tell these kids to get vaccinated. I think only about 10% of them are. So it was nice that she's out there. I'm mostly interested in her reminding us that she's a Disney girl. She said, I will be at the White House, bitch. Mm. I don't care what I said about this boy. I don't care if there's rock influence in my music. I will be at the White House in a Chanel suit that is 10 years older than me. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to serve. Mm-hmm. Decorum. Plus, you know, it's nice to see that this is the first pop star, first, like, cultural icon visiting, right? You know, because Obama mm-hmm. was trucking niggas in every week. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nigga of the week. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> no one wanted to go to the Trump White House at all, mm, except for true. racists. Yeah. Ted Nugent. Yeah. Sarah Palin. Yeah. And Kanye. <laughs> hey, Kanye was there to represent us all. Ira, watch your mouth. I'm not going to drag Mr. West at the moment <laughs> because he's rumored to be dropping a new album and I will probably be listening to it, uh, especially since it's going to be about the divorce. <gasps> and you know what? I think I've just gone full-throated back into being a Kanye fan again, unfortunately. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm back, too. I'm back, too. I was listening to Jesus is King on the way to Miami. Okay. Girl, I was listening to Jesus this week, thanks to TikTok. Um, because Blood on the Leaves has been going viral um, as part of this like meme this week on TikTok. And I started listening to that song and Yeezus again. And I was like, why does this just slap so much? It's so good. It's so good. Wait a minute. What about listening to Jesus is King got you back in his good favor? Because I listened to that album and I was like, well, I guess I won't be listening to that album again. I actually remember it being a keep it of mine. I was like, ugh, this shit is out. Yeah. <laughs> but now, you know, it's growth. It's fully growth. Now I'm, I'm having a gospel phase. I believe gospel transcends all music. And I'm reminded I'm a black woman at the end of the day. So... Mm. I will be listening to Jesus is King, Lewis, <laughs> on Eid. On Eid, I will be listening to Jesus is King. You have to know that when Aida was just reporting this to me, her eyes got so wide, like she had eaten the bad berries. I was like, something has taken over this girl. The Nightlock. I got the Nightlock berries from Hunger Games, and I'm gone. I've been having a gospel phase, too. Uh, Kirk Franklin's 2005 album, Hero. I don't know why the song Looking For You, I think it was also trending on TikTok. Mm. Maybe I am Gen Z. Ira, you're a TikTok girl. I am constantly on TikTok. Uh, And so I've been listening to that album, and that goes in too. Okay, he is giving you hip-hop, gospel. It's shit for the club. (laughs) It's shit for the club after the pearly gates. Okay. uh, Is what (laughs) it is. You know, if if you you, you better hope you're on the list, to be honest. If we're talking about music for uh, Jesus lovers... 
Only two options. One, Carpenter's Christmas, of course. Second of all, Lewis Howe. Miss, Miss Amy Grant, please. Baby, baby comes on in the car. Guess where my ass is in the air? Out of it. <laughs> out of it. That is skyward to God. Ass in the I'm air. I'm going to Charlie's Angels duck and roll if you turn that on in the car. <laughs> and I also revisited, I feel like Coloring Book, the 2016 um Chance the Rapper album is a gospel album in its yeah, way. I'm good on that. <laughs> Ira, fine. Even though, even though I did see that tour twice. So what do you mean you're good on that, ma'am? I just want to get back to the Chance the Rapper that we all loved. Acid rap. Yeah. Well, that and yeah. Coloring Book, too. That will never happen. I think so. before he tweeted <laughs> or gave interviews. Yeah. I like when he was on drugs and single. Or opinions on politics <laughs> in Chicago. Or supported Kanye. But actually... I first got mad at Chance the Rapper on Keep It for supporting Kanye, but if I now support Kanye again, then by the transitive, transitive property, property, I can no longer be mad at Chance the Rapper. My so, wife. So I ain't got no problems, got no problems with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, God, that feedback loop got all the way back to you. Jesus. Um, do you know what always struck me as a Christian rock song? Um Oh. Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Green Day. The lyrics, mm. like, are they secretly Jesus-y? It really sounds like it in that song. Mm. Don't know where it goes and I'm the only one and I walk alone. Very youth Christian campy. Yeah, my shallow heart's the only thing that's beating is very crucible. It's giving, <laughs> I'm on the cross. It's mm-hmm. giving nails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Green Day is always very much that. It's supposed to always give email, but it's not giving you like, newfound glory it's not giving you like fallout boy it's not giving you you know what the other emo girls are giving you it is giving you like i'm sad but also some light at the end of the tunnel is gonna save me so it does seem very jesusy yeah i wonder about them american idiot literally follows the story of jesus of suburbia oh so there is you know there's christian references there there, there, there. Insidious. Giving Reliant K. It's giving Reliant <laughs> K. Go. And switch foot. You know what? I should know that, but I famously fell asleep during American Idiot on Broadway. Famously? <laughs> what? Who reported on this? What happened? Why does the world know? I just like saying famously now because of Z-Way. I know. Z-Way changed the, yeah, she changed the culture. She did. Yeah. Miss Olivia, yeah. it gives me hope that Sour will be on Broadway at some point. Oh. Uh, too, too many of the songs are repetitive. Imagine the teens singing Olivia Rodrigo yeah. songs. Mm. Give her two more albums and then there'll be that. You think she'll star in it? Absolutely. Giving you a little Ben Platt. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah. Okay, she could get the Grammy. She could get the Tony. And then when it's made into a movie, she can get an Oscar. Here's actually an interesting point that we haven't talked about in regards to Ben Platt. And I know that everyone's dragged the wig. Oh, from the Dear Evan Hansen trailer, yes. But I appreciate him going for it because wouldn't it make him the first person to EGOT for the same role? Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Because he still has that weird, I guess that's a legitimate Emmy. We all know that he won an Emmy for performing on like Good Morning America or the Today Show. And then they discontinued the category of like single performance like on television. He and Cynthia Erivo both have them. Uh Uh-huh. A conditional one. Yeah. Yeah. So he could get the EGOT and it's for literally the exact same role all four times. (gasps) Girl, Miss Ben Platt is 27 years old. Mm-hmm. That is so young. I really, really thought that he was much older than that. Well, in the trailer for this movie, you might mistake him for something in the yeah 30 to 40 zone. Um, that said, you know what? I weirdly am supportive of people who have to play super young. Like, 
I'm sympathetic to Florence Pugh playing 12 for a split second in Little Women. Mm-hmm. And in the 50s, mm-hmm. there was this woman, Julie Harris, who won the most Best Actress Tony. <laughs> she won five. Wow. Um, she was in the movie of Carson McCullers, The Member of the Wedding. Mm-hmm. And she's 29 playing a 12-year-old. And I'll be honest, you give it like a super cutsy haircut and it kind of works. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm just it's, I'm being reminded now of watching Ben Platt pop up in The Politician and being like, this does not make sense. Why does he look 50? And <laughs> these kids look 16. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will say his new music is good, though. He has a youthful energy. I like his new music. Yeah. His music runs a little sappy for me. Well. Mm. Even though he seems lovely. I know him. We, we know him a little bit. Yeah. I'm famously maudlin. So. Oh. Mm, are you? I like sappy. Mm. I I feel like it. I was out here touting the Carpenters a second ago. Don't tell me about Maudlin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, you talk about Julie Harris, and we want to talk about Maudlin. We know I stand east of Eaton. Oh, <laughs> I love how... See, like, we pretend like I'm throwing out random references, and then Ira's like, you want to get even more random? And then <laughs> can match me. Yeah, she... I, I like her in East of Eaton, a movie that is surprisingly short. Mm. Well... Also, she starred in Knott's Landing. She had a long and amazing career, yes. Yeah, she was a country singer and played Joan Van Ark's mother on Knott's Landing. One time, uh, like seven years ago, I was talking to a woman I met at a party, and I made a joke that ended in Knott's Landing. I was like, I haven't thought about that since Knott's Landing. And she goes, I was on Knott's Landing. And it was um, <laughs> Claudia Lanau who, who joined the later seasons of Knott's Landing. I think I was making a joke about Constance McCashin, which I am on to do. Oh my <laughs> Lewis God. in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> the way we have nothing to say about Miss Rodrigo. She looked good. Yeah, that vintage Chanel, I'm telling you. She said, girl, don't play with me. Play with your pussy. That's what she said. <laughs> Into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> with Joe right there. Joe said, yep. I do have a couple of favorite celebrity White House visits. I'm going to bring them up for the last time. Okay. The Carpenters played for Richard Nixon, and he gives them an introduction like, the best of America's youth, the pride, whatever. And it's like minutes before he's, you know, he resigns and is the laughingstock of America. Mm. Um, but their performance is, of course, legendary. And this isn't technically a White House visit, but of course, the video of Patti LaBelle performing mm-hmm. at the Christmas thing and yelling, where are my backup singers? Exactly. And then at the end, Bill and Hillary Clinton come out after this disastrous performance where no one's ready. That, to me, is the best musical performer slash White House tie-in ever. I don't think we'll ever top that. Mm-hmm. Mm, my favorite White House visit is, of course, the Salahis. Oh, my gosh. The year was 2009 <laughs> or 10. Yes. <laughs> they just wandered right in. Well, I hope the kids get vaccinated. I guess me too. Yeah, I would really like that. That would be nice. Yeah, and you know, I hope they sneak and get vaccinated if their parents won't let them. Just like you sneak and get the abortions, girls. Get the vaccination. I forgot actually when we were talking about the youth not getting vaccinated that the toxic parents could be responsible for this awful. And this has been on my mind because in my hometown of Lamont, Illinois, our high school, which I've talked about this on the show before, I think with Diablo Cody, who is also from my hometown, that we were called the Lamont Injuns was our mascot, I-N-J-U-N-S. <gasps> and then they've changed it eventually to, Girl. and which she, she mocked herself in the movie Young Adult. They have the sweatshirts with that on it. There was a vote to change. They finally changed it to Indians in 2005 or so. Oh. I know. I know, I know we win. I know. Oh, sigh of relief. Oh. But they phased it out over the years, and they had a vote officially to get rid of it. And people blew up, like the Karen showed up and start yelling and mm-hmm. shame on you and you represent me and stuff. It's like, man, 
older people are just so defensive of the worst parts of their personality. Like if you change them, you've killed them essentially. <laughs> so I think we know that from, you know. Oh yeah, life, January 6th, anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Imagine we told millennials we couldn't celebrate um October 3rd anymore. <laughs> <laughs> My thing about Mean Girls is we have no touchstones of the 2000s so we cling to that to have something from that era because if we didn't have that what from 2004 would we still be thinking about and the answer is only yeah by usher that's it <laughs> you, you got some hot takes about mean girls now a little bit what do you mean you don't like mean girls oh no 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 i enjoy it huh. it's just we've clearly expired mm. its value i think it's sort of like True. if after clueless came out it was all we talked about for 10 years that's mm. fair yeah Yes. That's all we have. Yeah. I, I think American Idiot came out in 2004. Oh, yeah. So. American Idiot's Full around circle. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Miss mm-hmm. Olivia Rodrigo. I want her to continue to wear outfits like that while she croons about being sad. I like that juxtaposition. Give me Blair Waldorf, but cry about it. Mm. I love it. <laughs> mm. I love it. All right. When we're back, I sit down for an intimate conversation with Rebecca Carroll. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is a writer, critic, and host of Come Through with Rebecca Carroll, which I've been on. (laughs) She's also a producer and curator of the new audio project, In Love and Struggle. Please come through for Rebecca Carroll. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Same. I'm glad you're here. And I got some questions about (laughs) In Love and Struggle. Because mm-hmm. I constantly feel like love is a struggle. 
but I don't think that my love struggles are what you're talking about in your audio project. I don't know. They really could be. I mean, (laughs) the idea for for the series, it's now, this is the second installment of a series that was live last year at the Mineta Lane Theater. Um, And this year, obviously, we couldn't do a live event, so it's all audio. But the idea for the series came from an inscription by Alice Walker Mm -hmm. um, a million years ago when I waited in line to have her sign a book, a copy of my book, and she wrote for Rebecca in Love and Struggle, Alice Walker. And I remember thinking that that was everything because, Mm. especially for black folks, it's like, it's always going to be love and it's always going to be a struggle. And mm-hmm. so I just sort of used that as a launch point to celebrate the lives and the stories and the experiences of Black women uh, through monologues and stories and poems and um, music. Mm-hmm. How long have you held on to this beautiful quote from Alice Walker? Is it a quote that she's used before or was this just what she had signed in your book? This is what she signed in my book. It's also a quote. I mean, I think the origin of it is a quote by Grace Lee Boggs, Mm -hmm. uh, an activist who said it at one time. And and I think it probably had something to do with Alice in tribute to her, but it was never quite clear. And and when I emailed Alice to ask her if I could use it, she was delighted to have been reminded. Mm. I love that. Okay. I always think about that as a genre of writing, by the way. What? The the things that authors write to people in books when they're in line. It's so stressful, actually, (laughs) right? Like, it's because you don't want to, like, bite other people's stuff. But Mm -hmm. when I, I mean, I published my first book when I was 24, and I didn't know, like, what should I write? What should I write? And I'm not going to lie. There were a couple of times that I wrote In Love and Struggle. Sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, And then later when I had the opportunity to meet my North Star and absolute idol, um, Toni Morrison, and she signed books that I brought for her, like all three or four or five of the books that I had. She very patiently, graciously signed them all. But one was with pleasure and one was blessings, mm. which I thought was really lovely. But I, but you're right that that is a terrific like genre. And there's so many people who have books um, that probably got like, depending on what was going on in the author's day or whatever story you tell them, right. a tiny little personal note too, that like no one else has ever seen. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, it's very stressful. I feel like, and I mean, luckily or unluckily with this book, my recent book, Surviving the White Gaze, um, I did a virtual tour. So mm. I didn't have to like sign, 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 you know, mm. with folks standing in line. So I missed doing that, but I also mm. am glad to have not had the stress of trying to come up with something really fabulous. Mm. <laughs> well, let's talk about that too, you know, because I've survived the white gaze, but a different spelling of gaze. <laughs> uh, but yours. <laughs> Listen, Ira, true story, true story. Two, three years ago, when I came up with the idea for the title of the memoir, and I said it out loud, and my son, who was then 13, was like, Mom, what do you have against gays? <laughs> That's a true story. Gays. <laughs> I think we have brought up white gays or something in film on this podcast over the four years that it's been on and in an interview with someone and each time they've stopped and been like, what What do you mean the gays? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's wrong with the gays? <laughs> uh, gays. Uh, yeah. Gays. Yeah. Uh. 
But that book, yeah. you know, uh, how did it feel, you know, like doing this during a pandemic and now we're slowly coming out of it. And, um, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, having published a book during that period and also now, you know, um, looking to like have it have a new life um, post pandemic where people are out? Well, I mean, I certainly hope so. Um, mm -hmm. I really, really missed bookstores, uh, especially independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that community, which is, has always given me so much love, and I just love book people. Mm -hmm. So I'm anxious to get back out into bookstores. I hope that that happens. You know, of course, the paperback will come out in, in the new, early in the next year. Mm -hmm. We'll wait and see what happens with that. But, and I super really missed the opportunity to do Trevor Noah Live. Like that, I would have, mm. it was a thrill to do it anyway, but I would have loved to have done that live. So, you know, I mean, it was, there were. You want to be next to Trevor Noah live, okay? You know what? The, the, Who doesn't? Do you know what I'm saying? Who does not? Great. He always smells good. I mean, <laughs> listen, I, I'm I'm gonna try to get on there. I am when the, when the paperback comes out. But I'm also kind of a low maintenance kind of gal, so it sort of was nice to do these events and conversations from my home mm -hmm. and then close the computer and like wash my face and pour a glass of wine. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it was mm -hmm. just nice to not have to to and fro a lot or get on a lot of, do a lot of traveling. And, and so mm -hmm. in that ways it was very economic and suited me, but I did miss doing seeing folks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Getting back to um, In Love and Struggle, you tell me about how like you conceived the original show in New York and then um, what changed when you were like, this is going to have to be all audio. Mm. You know, what was the impetus for being like, I do want to get it out this year and do like an audio component? So, you know, we work with, um, when the first one, uh, Camilla Forbes from the Apollo, who is just phenomenal, and uh, Monica Williams, who was director, and it was a real stage performance. Like, it was really, we had um, a harpist, mm. um, but it was a real production. Like, it was a real theatrical production. It was much more of a team um, effort and folks wrote their own stuff but then we had folks who would help you know turn it into something that felt mm -hmm. like a narrative arc but i was very much just about it was my vision and my concept and then you know the folks who came in to perform and had like these arresting presence like Brittany packnett cunningham and mm -hmm. anita hill and bossy ikpi and Mumu Fresh, and it was just a, a really bold and beautiful piece of work. The idea of doing it for audio only this year was actually a good bit easier for me because I've now done a bunch of audio. I hadn't done mm -hmm. so much. I mean, I worked at WMYC, but I mean podcast audio. So mm -hmm. in the time since that first one, I did come through, and then I did Billy Was a Black Woman. Um, and so I had a sense of how I wanted it to sound. And so for this installment, I wrote an intro and I did the interstitials and, and the outro and used that to weave through the, the voices in this one. I have a question too, you know, about uh, this, this project, you know, is celebrating, you know, so many black women and, you know, their um, stories. Uh, and then you have your book, Surviving the White Gaze. Uh, how have you found that writing this, that book, the memoir helped you, um, do you feel that you've ultimately survived it? Do you think you created a new black gaze for yourself to operate with in the world? Definitely. But I had it when I started writing. Otherwise, I couldn't mm -hmm. have written it, you know? Mm -hmm. The impetus for the memoir, which I knew I was always going to write, but I had to wait until I had the emotional mm -hmm. fortitude and the actual 
um, agency and foundation of my family and my chosen family. Um, but the summer that Mike Brown was murdered, um, my son was young and asked if we were going to get shot. Mm. And it was just this torrent of rage and protectiveness and fear and anger, but also like it was a real pivot for me as a mother and a black woman, mother of a black son. And I also just had this wave of remembering how my white family had sort of gone through life kind of nonchalantly, not thinking mm-hmm. about this kind of thing. And that's when I knew I was going to write the memoir. And that was the black gaze, right? Mm-hmm. I was now reflecting on my experience growing up in a white family in a white town through the black gaze. And I was pissed, mm-hmm. like really mad. And that, it would, that, that my son was in danger and that he felt in danger and that I was in danger, but that nobody knew that when I was being raised mm-hmm. or, or nobody thought about the danger that I was in. So, yeah, I definitely feel, you know, like I operate now through the black gaze. Mm-hmm. And, but I also, you know, I feel like black women in, when it comes to In Love and Struggle, and, and I write this in the intro, I saw a quote by Tarana Burke where she was talking about, you know, this is a moment for black women and we're black magic and we are saving the democracy and we're this and we're that, you know. And then you look at any number you know, of black women athletes um, surrounding the Olympics. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who flexed mm-hmm. crazily and beautifully, where she said, I'm not going to do your tenure at UNC. I'm going to go to Howard with my boy. <laughs> you <laughs> know what I'm that. saying? I mean, it was just perfect. I loved going through the process, too, of getting them to actually, yeah. you know, vote to give her tenure and then saying, absolutely not. The point is, is that we have so little opportunity as black women to just be, mm-hmm. you know, we either have to be everything or nothing in the white gaze in the eyes of America. So that's, the, you know, I wanted to create a space where we could just be. I love that. And I especially love also, you know, um, getting to like your other project too, like Billy was a black one. Was that a thing that was, um, was it brought to you? Was it a thing that like you had like, you know, sort of had a kernel of wanting to do, um, just telling these different um, stories um, that you've been doing in your projects of black women? Like what particularly made you pick Billie Holiday? That project came to me, was brought to me. Lee Daniels had requested that I work on it. And uh, it was a companion podcast to the United States versus Billie Holiday mm-hmm. with my girl, Andra. People should listen to the podcast. Yes. Because that is enjoyable. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But as soon as, um, as soon as Spoke and Paramount came to me, Spoke Media produced and Paramount produced, as soon as they came to me with the idea, I immediately thought, Billie Holiday has been so maligned, so targeted, so vaunted in ways that don't allow her to be human. At the end of the day, she was just a black woman trying to live, trying to live every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that if we could approach the ways in which Black women have also been targeted, maligned, and vaunted through these conversations with Andra, who Andra Day, who's an extraordinary person and gives an extraordinary performance as Billie Holiday, mm-hmm. um, and Laverne Cox, who is such a light. She's such a light and has such interesting perspectives on being a, a black woman and a black trans woman, and Mariah Carey, who mm-hmm. was so real and 
vulnerable and honest about her own experience as a black woman. So it was it was just an, an exceptional opportunity and I wanted to present as broad an array of, of black women insights and voices to interrogate, examine and honor Billie Holiday as a black woman. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that is that is a lineup, right? Yeah. And Angela <laughs> Davis and Angela Davis. Mm hmm. I don't know. What, what was it like? I mean, even talking to these women. <laughs> I found Mariah to be real, as I said, just so much more real than I had anticipated. Mm -hmm. I mean, because she has, of course, I mean, she has this presence and this image, mm -hmm. but, but she was very, very, she just was lovely to talk to. Was this before or after her memoir? After. After. And, okay. Right, yes. And so, you know, she has had just dug deep in the same way that I had mm -hmm. in this kind of excavation. Um, and I, so, so I feel like we met on that level and um, shared a lot of the same kinds of struggles with problematic white parents. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she, she just was really forthcoming. So that was really a joy. And, you know, again, Laverne was so intimate. I love in an interview when somebody calls you by your first name when they're talking to you. Mm. And she would say, you know, Rebecca, <laughs> and I just loved the, how personal she was, how she really wanted to make it a connection, mm -hmm. right? And not just me interviewing her. Um, and Andra was like just a good girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was super easy mm -hmm. and delightful. And I got to profile her for InStyle recently too. Mm -hmm. And then Angela. I mean, the tenor of her voice, it's like nothing else, you know. She lingers mm -hmm. on the words, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, it, and it, so it's this, this way of feeling like just getting inside of her language and just feeling her hard-earned freedom. Mm -hmm. And plus, she's brilliant. So that was a fantastic conversation. Absolutely. In love and struggle, you know, what, what are you ultimately hoping that, you know, you can um, get people to take out of this story? Well, I think as is my approach to most of my work regarding blackness, black culture, identity, black womanness, language, media, art, words, is that it's not a one-off. Mm -hmm. We don't just do one thing like Black History Month, and then we're good. And I think if nothing else, what we're seeing right now, you know, in, so in this quote-unquote racial reckoning, is that it takes longer than a month. Mm -hmm. It takes longer than a book. You know, it takes longer than one statement. And that, you know, there's this small crack in the window that I'm just trying to, like, get in there and just jam up as high as I can and just shove through as much work and information in a creative way about what we do, how we live, how we are, and why we are so integral to this country and to this culture. Mm -hmm. Have you, you found that you like one particular medium more than the other? I mean, as a person who writes, as a person who does audio, yeah. uh, and your audio projects are comprehensive projects that aren't, you know, just sort of like a weekly podcast or something, you know, there's this... Uh, production to them where you know this is a finished project well it's funny you should ask because you know surviving the white gates has been optioned for uh, a limited series tv mm. and i'm adapting it and so and i've written another pilot as well that that is in progress uh and so tv writing is really 
really challenging. Mm -hmm. And I'm enjoying that challenge of it in the same way that when I first started writing for audio, I was like, this is not that easy. Mm -hmm. But then you, you, you figure out like, you know, you find the muscle and tap the skill. And that's just so cool to feel, you know, at this particular juncture and point in my life and career to feel like, you know, regenerative, like a, a new thing that feels really cool to do. I will always be a writer at my very core. And so if I can be a writer for different mediums and do it well, then I like them all, like them all the same. Okay, but I said pick one, girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said pick one, you, you Rebecca. Did, you did, you did, you did. I'm sorry. You're right, you're right. You're right. If I can write a really, really good piece of cultural criticism, that's it. Mm -hmm. the, like my review of the Andre Leon Talley book for the Times, I thought was one of the best pieces of writing mm -hmm. I've d ever done. And I did, I did like that piece. I mean, <laughs> you had some things to say. I had some things to say. I really did. Um, but yeah, I love interrogating art and writing. And if you could do it in a way that feels good, then that's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I always wonder that too as a cultural critic, you know, it's like, do, do you enjoy still doing that, you know, like parsing someone else's work, you know, when then you're also parsing your own, but isn't that the best part of it, you know, like yes. being in conversation with one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how we do. That's how we get our ideas. That's how we continue the conversation about what's good, mm -hmm. you know, that's how we change the standard. That's how we change the white gaze, right? Mm -hmm. The white gaze, that which is the standard of everything that is good. Mm -hmm. The canon of literature, right? Mm -hmm. The standard of beauty. All of these things, if we are in conversation with each other and interrogating and thinking critically, then we really do change the narrative. Mm -hmm. And he was under the Anna Wintour gaze. I mean, which is about as white as it gets. Yes, yes. Maybe worse than the white gaze, to be honest. More, <laughs> or, a little bit whiter. more scary. A little scarier. <laughs> yes, yes uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Did you ever hear from him? He responded to a mutual friend mm. who told me that he liked it. Okay. Yeah. He, I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was glad. I was glad for that. Yeah, I, I really do constantly think that that's a thing that we need more of, you know, like particularly with black cultural critics, you know, like uplifting each other's works. You know, I feel like, you know, like even in like so like movies or something, you know, it's like um, Angelica Bastion can't write every review. Right. You know, Doreen, <laughs> know. Doreen St. Felix can't write everything in The New Yorker. Yeah. You know? Right. No, totally. Um, and it's by having a willingness to engage each other's work uh, and then responding in kind, you know, um, yeah. that I think, you know, helps people. I think due to the dearth of, um, you know, sort of like black power access, you know, um, for years, you know, in, in the media, um, there has just sort of been this um, feeling that you need to, you know, sort of protect black voices and like some other black voices, you know, like once they get sort of that access um, are really sort of adamant about not wanting any criticism or sort of really fostering, you know, sort of like um, a criticism free bubble. And it can be hard. That I feel has come to a bit of a head, right, recently mm -hmm. with work that is out there. You know, I think about Angelica Jade Bastion, who is such a good writer, and um, her criticism of the film that Lena Waithe produced. No, the show, Them. Them, the show. Okay, Them. But then I was like, you know, when I was, was reading the response from the makers of that work, and it's, you know, I do feel like compassion and, and empathy for that because any criticism that is 
that succinct and harsh in a way mm-hmm. is hard to take and hard to hear, especially when you, mm-hmm. it, it's, you've created something, you've made something. But at the same time, I think it's an opportunity for us to talk with each other, as you have said, mm-hmm. and not take it so deeply personal. I mean, I feel like as a creator and creative and as a critic, I feel both ways. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you're right, so right, that we have so long tried to make stuff that doesn't get stolen, doesn't get trashed, doesn't get appropriated, that there is this sense of protecting that work. What does it mean if we say it's not good? Mm-hmm. It's really hard because we're always trying as black folks to you know, stand in our individuality while also remaining in community, mm-hmm. right? Like have a view that is your own while also holding us all together in community. I mean, it's very much like this whole recent Cosby catastrophe, like moral catastrophe Mm -hmm. with Felicia Rashad, you know, tweeting her support. I also interviewed Felicia Rashad last summer for, um, I profiled her for Bustle. Mm -hmm. And it was probably hard, you know, because she was, you walked in and she was like, you know, free Cosby, am I right? And you were like, oh my God. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Because when I was asked, you know, to do it, I was like, oh my God, I have to ask her. I, I mm-hmm. have to ask her, but I didn't want to be disrespectful because she's Felicia mm-hmm. Rashad, you know? Of course. Um, and so I ended up not mentioning his name by name, but sort of mm-hmm. referring to it. And, and the way that she responded was so devastating mm. that I almost couldn't continue the interview. Like she likened it to um, Zorniel Hurston, mm. who was wrongly accused of sexually assaulting a young boy. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. It was wild. Mm. But so what do you do with that? God's eyes were not watching that. God's eyes were not watching, Ira. God was not watching. So what do you do? But what do you do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. You know, it's uh, there's always going to be obviously, you know, things in the community that people disagree on. Um, but you do, you know, want that compassion, especially for someone like Felicia, who's done so much. Yeah. For yeah. Us, you know, uh, and you wonder, you know, like what her sister thinks. Right. Uh, but yeah. I feel like we know what she thinks. Uh- <laughs> I, do too. I know. Uh, I, know. I mean, Debbie did famously, uh, you know, like fight for Lisa to stay on, um, yeah. the Cosby show, uh, even yeah. when she was pregnant, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. right. So um, she knew from back then, but I want to say that, you know, like... Um, <laughs> Debbie's like the, Solange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get in the oh. elevator with Debbie. Don't do it. <laughs> wow. Rebecca, thank you for joining me today. Oh, what a delight. Yes. Such a pleasure. Yes, I'm calling thank you by you your first me. name so much now because I'm trying to be Laverne. <laughs> Nobody can be Laverne. <laughs> and so everyone knows, come through with Rebecca Carroll is available wherever you get your podcast. But you go and consume everything, Rebecca Carroll, that we've talked about today. Okay, <laughs> listen to "In Love and Struggle." Get "Surviving the White Gay." Billy was a black woman. Yeah, Billy was a black woman. Everything. Thank you. I really, I really enjoy your writing and your work and talking to you. So thank you. Likewise. Big fan.
Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Even though it's summer, we decided to give each other some homework. <laughs> it may seem like we all watch everything, but even we have our own blind spots. And some of them are very surprising, which I think you've all realized listening to us um, for the past few years. So we decided to assign each other a little viewing to fill in the gaps in our cultural blind spots. And I yes. asked Lewis to watch three episodes of The Simpsons. And by the way, when I said, oh, I don't know much about The Simpsons, Ira, within seconds, had the three episodes all planned out. So clearly this was on his mind. <laughs> he gave me the Cape Fear episode, the Marge versus the Monorail, and what was the second one I watched, Ira? Homer's Phobia. Homer's Phobia, yes. Oh, which is a very gay-specific <laughs> episode where um, John Waters plays a gay friend of the um, Simpsons. I'm shocked you never got to The Simpsons. I mean, you being one of the funniest people, if not the funniest person I know, as far as joke writing and understanding of comedy and being a comedy writer, like it feels like it's in the guidebook of becoming a comedy writer is to have watched The Simpsons. It's weird to me what I am insistent about being a completist on, and then this mm -hmm. is not there. Like I've never felt super obligated. Maybe it's because I, I think I grew up around people who just were constantly quoting The Simpsons. Mm. And weirdly to me, it's a show where you feel you can kind of just quote it out of context to other people, but it usually is situational to what the episode is about and also to who the characters are. Mm -hmm. So when people quote it, I always feel like it's missing something and maybe that's like put me off of actually absorbing the show. But I am, first of all, so happy I watched that John Waters episode uh, because there's a lot of uh, Homer coping with what it means to be around a gay person, the perceptions of knowing a gay person, will I be perceived as gay, which is probably pretty expected. But <laughs> I love the final line they give John Waters. They're like, oh, it only took me saving your life for you to respect me. Like, I thought that was a pretty uh, ahead of its time sort of woke takeaway from uh, that. And also, by the way, from the monorail episode, I, di I didn't know anything about the Leonard Nimoy presence in that episode. They really give celebrities... I'm sorry how elementary this sounds. And everybody who's watched the show knows this, but they really are like, let's not bore the celebrities. Let's give them something like insane to do. So Leonard Nimoy being unhinged in the episode and rattling off weird facts to people he meets and being on the runaway monorail was just pretty cool to see. So if you have favorite particular celebrity Simpsons cameos, send those to me because I will seek those out. I mean, Meryl's in one too, you know? So it's like... Um, it's, I believe it's Bart's girlfriend, and she plays, like, the pastor's daughter. But um, the show was always, you know, I feel like that's why people got Emmy noms and, like, would win mm -hmm. for The Simpsons because it is really giving a guest actor, like, 
a meaty role to play. Mm -hmm. More so than just doing stunt casting on like some like live action TV show like Friends. Mm -hmm. Also, my favorite thing about The Simpsons was it was so fearless in taking on issue-based episodes. Every episode feels like they're trying to make a political statement and they do such a good job of it that every single joke that has to do with that same idea of like, oh, I dance with a gay person. Does this mean I'm gay? Do you think I'm, you think I'm, it's like, Every joke that comedians do now is kind of derivative of these episodes of The Simpsons. And I think even now about the Dave Chappelle joke, the trans joke that he made that we were all kind of up in arms about is just this episode of The Simpsons with a trans person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What's something that's interesting about watching this, too, is it's so influential and like there's been offshoots of the Simpsons humor, which have led to more offshoots and more offshoots. It's now like, like 15 generations in the past in terms of in, being an influence. Mm -hmm. And you can almost... It, like watching it now, it's shocking to realize this episode is from 1992 or whenever it is because you almost can't even count up how formative every single part of it is. The takes on pop culture, the takes on issues or social awareness, things like that. So that almost requires its own sort of history lesson. Like I wish I had somebody telling me, oh, we never had jokes about this before, you know, this episode or mm-hmm. nobody ever addressed that because it is in its own way revolutionary Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like an acclaimed episode also it was almost banned on fox when it came out like it was doing a lot of legwork for 1997 that's a lot to try to handle on network television Mm -hmm. also just like the jokes still hit you know Mm -hmm. hobart he prefers the company of men who does it? <laughs> one, one thing I will say in terms of like something I can't sign on to generally, even though that joke is really funny, I don't really think Homer is funny. It, maybe it's just I'm so inundated with, one, people's impressions of him, and two, who he is, that I just know what it is. I know what kind of response he'll give every time now. I mean, like everybody else I think is like mm. great. And by the way, if you told anybody in like 1979, the woman who plays the sister on Rhoda is going to be worth... Nine figures one day. Julie Kavner <laughs> kills it on this show. <laughs> um, the thing you said about Homer is interesting, too, just because um, on my plane back from New York the other day, I was watching just like an episode of Simpsons that was available on Delta, and it was season 31. Okay, yeah. And it was just like every joke about every character is really just you know what the jokes are already and it's just really just like trying to make stone soup mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it is not cute uh and I, I you know i think homer's very funny um to me but i can see why you know like if you're inundated with it for years um why it's not funny and i listen i get comfort food <laughs> i watch days of our lives still really like watching it was just like huh same jokes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. homer's fat homer's dumb Okay. It's a little bit like a comic strip or something, you know, ones that run for 40 years. It's like they're still playing off the same three character traits, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, not Mary Worth, okay? <laughs> Mary Worth is That's still, what you thought of first. still okay. giving it, okay? <laughs> She's giving it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about the archetype of like the inept father that kind of trickled into all the comedies after that. I'm Family Guy is just a different version of The Simpsons and even American Dad. Like, I just, The Simpsons has a foothold. Simpsons has a chokehold on all the comedies that came after <laughs> mm. it. So, Lewis, what did you assign Aida? Well, this was difficult. So, Aida brought up Meryl Streep. And obviously, there's a ton of ways to go with this. Like, mm. Meryl's first two Oscar wins are probably her definitive performances, right? Kramer versus Kramer and uh, Sophie's Choice. But I feel like in terms of really knowing the limits of what Meryl can do and knowing what she's game for, 
death becomes her is a really important step. So I assign that to Aida. So if you don't know, death becomes her 1992 movie, Meryl, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, about two women who uh, consume a youth potion and the foibles and (laughs) cartoonish things that occur after they scramble to keep their youth. Aida, what did you think of this Gay classic that actually, to me, I have a lot of problems with, but there's a lot that's essential about it. Well, if you recall, I watched it for the first time when the pandemic started. Oh, right. And and you were like, you had problems with it. And I was like, I had never seen it. And I fucking love this film. (laughs) I'm obsessed. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I actually watched it twice. No, you didn't. Last night. And then, no, I swear to God. And I ran it back again today because, you know, as somebody, again, who writes comedy, I've never seen a film like this. Like, it's a standalone, by itself, black comedy, weirdly fantastical, cartoonish. At one, When Meryl falls down the stairs and she comes back up with her neck totally twisted around, it, it was giving Looney Tunes. Like, that is an Acme moment. That is not anything <laughs> I've ever seen in film. It was amazing. And I understand why y'all be running around quoting films now. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I didn't get it until this moment. I'm like, I've always stood on the outside of gay men culture and been like, why do y'all know every single line of every movie you've seen? But after you hear Meryl Streep say, you trashy, flaccid clown, I understand. (laughs) I understand you flaccid. I get it. I get it. Who is just as dead below the waist as his clients are? (laughs) I was like, yo, this movie is hilarious. Okay. And my favorite thing about it were the things that were inexplicable and nobody cared to address. Like when Meryl Streep is at, she's trying to get uh, another plasma treatment so she can be youthful again. And Dr. Chagall comes in, he has this weird twitchy eye and we just don't talk about it ever again like this is just part of the world that everything is wild i love this film i love this film i love this film Mm -hmm. also a very inspired winner for the visual effects oscar you know i mean because it's like Mm -hmm. it's so goofy on the one hand but two like you need that level of goofiness to get the satire level at play. Mm -hmm. So it's like a really inspired and witty version of special effects. Also, it's like Robert Zemeckis. I know. This straight man. That girl ate. It is is wild in the Zemeckis oeuvre. It is the movie he did before Forrest Gump. Yeah. But you know what I would say about Robert Zemeckis, though? Even as like being a writer for Back to the Future and making Forrest Gump, he always goes out of his way to make sure that form is twisted and he's not just giving you a straight up movie. It's never going to fulfill a genre's requirements. I think he innovates every time he makes something and that's, ugh, yeah. girl. Yeah. Love you, Zemeckis. And he put his wife in the film, his wife at the time, but uh, she popped in. It was that fun little scene where she finds out that Bruce Willis's character is spray painting yes. the cadavers, the dead bodies, and she's like horrified, but it's hilarious. It's really, really funny. Them at the funeral at the end, Truly hilarious. Mm. I'm also looking at Zemeckis' um, filmography right now, and I'm like, maybe it's just because I don't like Forrest Gump. Likewise. Um, but I'm like, I forget that everything else is it's like, who framed, who framed Roger Rabbit? Slaps. Yeah. Another one yeah. where it's like, no movie to compare it to. Not even Cool World, which if you see Cool World, guys, you will regret it. I know you look at Brad Pitt and the, the cartoon characters and think, oh, there's probably something fun in this. Let Ooh. me assure you there is not. <laughs> Baby, don't remind me. Cool world exists. <laughs> we need to give Zemeckis more. Like he'll pop up, and he's just like an executive producer on Queen Latifah's Last Holiday. He's mm-hmm. a girl. <laughs> what business did you have? I want to know. What yeah. lies beneath? Almost good, mostly just long. <laughs> yeah, I revisited that recently and discovered it. 
Not as good as I remember it. No. Not thrilling. Also, you know what's not mm. thrilling? Finding out, spoiler, that Harrison Ford is the bad guy. Like, oh, you're, you're, you're grumpy and now you're mm. evil? Like, not really a jump, you know? Uh-huh. What else do you do, girl? Maybe Castaway <laughs> is the last one that was really, like, hit. Mm-hmm. Hit for me. But I, like, mm. I haven't had... And, like, there's parts of What Lies Beneath that are fun. Um, but maybe it was Death Becomes Her was the last, like, truly, like, okay, we're having, like, a good-ass time. Zemeckis film. Yeah. You know? Like, we haven't had any romancing the stones. No back to the yeah. future. The Polar Express does nothing for me. Oh, it's because, girl, you, were, you wasn't raised on Polar Express. Polar Express taught me the importance of interracial friendships, okay? Mm. Polar Express changed my life. Polar Express is why I can talk to you, Lewis. <laughs> why we can bond. Mm. Uh, the, I think I became a cynic the minute I saw the Polar Express. The movie's like, it's so important that you believe. And I pulled out a cigarette for the first time at age 12, and I was like, why? <laughs> doesn't matter that you believe. Turn the train around. I'm a nihilist. Mm. Well, speaking of classic comedies, oh, Aida, yes. you gave me a recommendation. I did. And honestly, it's kind of a cheap recommendation in the way that it was an offshoot of something Lewis told me to watch about a year ago. And I finally got to it on the plane. But I told Ira to watch 9 to 5, which is a movie that absolutely blew my mind. I'll let you get into it. But it is like a 1980s comedy starring our favorites, our favorite lesbian, Lily Tomlin, our favorite, I want her to be lesbian, Jane Fonda, and Lewis's literal god, and the shocking Dolly Parton, who was hilarious in this movie. And it's just an office movie classic. It's hilarious. Mm. Um, how did you feel about it, Ira? It's funny. I, I would describe it almost as Lewis described The Birdcage as like a very long sitcom mm-hmm. plot because for me, the movie doesn't take off until Lily Tomlin thinks she killed their boss and then they're running to the mm-hmm. hospital and stealing cadavers. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I really, really enjoyed like the chemistry between all three of these women. I think it's so fun. It's so interesting watching a film like this from that period um, and seeing like how little things have changed, you know, where they're talking about jokes about like misogynistic bosses and equal pay and daycare. And it's like, <laughs> well, check out 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a damn thing changed. <laughs> There's always talk of them making a sequel to this. And it's like, you could just watch the 1980 version. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny too, just because one thing I really admired about the film is um, sort of the colors in it. Because the three women are really the only ones wearing color in this drab office. But as the movie goes on, the film gets more colorful and bright and zany. And, of course, their dream sequences when they imagine killing Hart Mm -hmm. are wild. Oh, yeah. Jane's in particular I love. Yeah. (laughs) Also, uh, whenever Jane talks about that movie, she may have even said this when she was on with us. She's like... I took the worst part. I just wanted to be a part of it. Oh. She does have a funny scene in the movie with the copier at the beginning. I love that scene. Yes, but, I but no, love she that really scene. is. She really doesn't get anything to do in this film. No. Yeah. yeah. She's the nervous one. She's the one kind of following along. Our prude, our prude wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things about this film is that the theme song that we know from it. It's like Dolly Parton's biggest song from the <laughs> from the decade, Nine to Five. She wrote that on set. She wrote that on set, hanging out, clicking her little fingernails, her acrylics on the desk, which is so. This is just. She's a feminine icon get out of the Mm -hmm. way get out of the way she was clicking her little nails on the desk and made the beat and ended up writing it nine to five and i think that's a beautiful little story apparently it was jane's idea to cast her in the first place she said she heard uh dolly parton's song two doors down on the radio and she's like oh she would be Mm. perfect in this role by the way when singers can just up and decide to be great actors how chilling is that a friend of mine just watched uh in uh come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean which is her first 
real movie. She, <laughs> what a long name. It's a yes, yeah, based on based on a so-so play, and honestly, it's a so-so movie in certain ways. But Cher is amazing. She was in one movie before it, uh, Chastity, in the late '60s, which was a huge, notorious bomb. But man, Cher just was like, actually, if you give me the part, I'll be super grounded and funny and real. Yeah. And who expected that from her? Who's like constantly larger than life? But anyway, uh, Dolly Parton in that movie. Similar, just like a natural, like ready to serve you real humanity and like a comic sensibility right off the top. Yeah. Yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna let Justin Timberlake's performance in the social network <laughs> and friends with benefits go unspoken here. Okay. Say Lewis. that. Or Say <laughs> exactly. That. Say That's a that. singer turned actor I wanna talk about. Okay. Icy girl. <laughs> Let's talk about crossroads. Any other free Britney. We do not have to talk about crossroads. We do not have <laughs> I to. I might be tired. <laughs> I don't know how much I care. Dolly Parton is so fun in the movie. And I mean, honestly, shout out to her for um, you know, being the sexy woman at work who people spread rumors about. Right. Yeah. Also spread rumors about me. Somebody guys. somebody who weirdly uh, models office wear well. I just miss like a a work blouse, like tucked in mm. like that. Picture the way families looked on Family Feud in the late seventies. Let's bring that back a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's That's, not. Uh, you, <laughs> you breaking the record for sentences that have never been uttered ever, <laughs> ever in life. <laughs> you need a plaque. <laughs> I also want to point out that while they were keeping their um, boss captive, he was um, watching. Um, Days of Our Lives. Oh. You would. You would want to mention that. Yeah. And connecting that with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was watching in the 80s and, you know, so a lot of chaos going on, you know, mm-hmm. during the 80s. I believe that was an Ira Easter egg. I think that was written in, you know, preemptively th- knowing that eventually you'd get around to it. So. <laughs> That's kind of sweet. That's kind of sweet of them if you think about it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I really think that yes. that was for, um, that was for me. For you. Yeah. So. And only you. Glad I watched it. And shout out to, of course, uh, Dabney Coleman in the movie who gives a uh, fabulous performance as the horrible boss. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, And um, Roz seems, you know, very much like um, a woman Lewis would admire. Uh, Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Severe. In the same way, (laughs) in the same way that I've said the, the Kaminsky method is just grace and Frankie for men. Horrible Bosses is just nine to five for men. Mm. I don't know if you guys remember that that film. Oh, absolutely. Baby, I've seen Horrible Bosses one and two, okay? <laughs> it's a Jason Sudeikis moment okay. this month. Okay, I am a horrible bossy bitch. <laughs> is that what they call their fans? I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might be the, the only one that feels the need for community, so you can name them. <laughs> Where my horrible boss stands at? Where my horrible boss stands at? <laughs> <laughs> you on Reddit. Where's Horrible Boss Baby? <laughs> oh, God. Okay, we need to shut this down. I'm going to close the computer. Yeah, yeah, I'm closing the computer. I'm wet. <laughs> well, that was fun. We should definitely do that again sometime. Yeah. Uh, and when we're back, keep it. And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. What do we say Keep It to this week, y'all? Aida, you go first. You seem excitable. Is it? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I ventured outside again, which again, I just, I regret it. I regret it every time. I had to go back to the Regal and I watched Space Jam. And girl, let me just tell you, keep it to this film. Ooh. Keep it to this movie. It is disrespectfully bad. Ooh. Now, I know it's a children's film. I know it's a children's film. So before y'all come to me talking about, it's for kids. You're not even supposed to like it. You can appreciate a film 
And you can still find humor in it. In fact, my favorite movies are the ones that give adults secret jokes. They throw them a little something Mm -hmm. to enjoy while the children just look at the pretty colors Mm -hmm. and Taz, I don't know, doing spins or whatever. But y'all didn't have to remake this movie. You really didn't. Especially not with LeBron. LeBron, not an actor, baby. (laughs) Simply cannot act. Listen, I will go on record as liking him in Trainwreck. I agree. I do think he's funny in Trainwreck. A movie that was mostly good until the moral of the movie I didn't like, basically. But I thought everybody was good in it. Mm -mm -mm. But him being good in Trainwreck would not mean that I then cast him to act opposite a film that's entirely CGI. Yeah, and to be the but, successor to Michael Jordan when we already know Michael Jordan's best basketball player. Like, why would oh, you put yourself true. in that situation? Ooh, okay, <laughs> anyway, but LeBron. also, but also, let's let's remind ourselves that Michael Jordan also cannot act. Oh yeah, and the original Space Jam is also not good. Right, keep it to Space Jam <laughs> as a as a franchise. Why stop? I don't I don't need to see this. Whoever asked for this film to be put together, I was like, oh, I need Looney Tunes and athletes. That's like ridiculous. But I will say this there's also an air to it that i found to be kind of racist like i don't (laughs) know who wrote this film but don Cheadle plays a character he plays a literally a computer and he runs software and his name is al g rhythm horrible awful (laughs) the first 20 minutes of the film is just all the black people giving each other elaborate elaborate handshakes i don't know again who wrote this movie it's not funny i feel like it's just right looney tunes is right there it's always hilarious but it was not funny Mm. there's a lot of grab bag references of just black culture didn't like it also lebron is rude in the movie he's a father (laughs) of course and his son (laughs) his son uh, wants to go to a video game creation camp and the whole theme of the movie is they've created this video game and LeBron gets sucked into it and the only way to get out is to defeat Al G Rhythm and his team, his opposing team, the Goon Squad. You know, dads and kid comedies are notoriously awful because they have to be awful and like sort of assholes to before they learn their lesson at the end of the film, right? Right. Like, like Liar Liar is very much like the dad learns a lesson that their kids are important. Yeah. It always has to end with, oh, now I am going to go to your soccer game. Uh-huh. I'm going to support you. <laughs> Work's not important. You know who remains one of the darker dads ever? I think we talked about him recently because he passed away. Charles Grodin and Beethoven. Mm. Dads cannot mm. be that cynical. It's violent. I find it frightening. He is chilling in that yeah. film. <laughs> it's like they shoot yeah. dogs, don't they? Yeah, right. <laughs> I am constantly worried for Beethoven's life in that film. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say that you brought up a good point about we need to stop pretending this is like the difference between The Godfather 2 and Godfather 3 here. I'm sorry. If you're watching the original (laughs) Space Jam, already something's up because that was like amusing at the time. And like, whatever, we enjoy the Quad City DJs or whoever's on the soundtrack, but you don't need to like really revisit. (laughs) My biggest critique, it was not enough Zendaya. I think she had like six lines and it wasn't enough Lola Bunny for me. Mm. And that's the only thing that I'm really worried about. Also, Porky Pig was doing rap battles. Again, racism. Simply racism. The problem with this movie for me, I'm going to see it, but the problem for me was always going to be that every joke in the trailer seems very geared towards a kind of kid that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Like, what kid is seeing, like, the rapping granny and seeing this rap battle stuff and being like, I need to see this. It seems very much like what was being marketed to us as kids because it was in vogue at the time. But, like, kids aren't watching that shit anymore. And also, Mm -hmm. do kids even have a cultural reference for the Looney Tunes anymore? That, like, we had. I was just thinking about that. It's Disney. I mean, literally, Bugs Bunny debuted 
officially in 1940. It's sort of like if the number one box office star in America right now were Catherine Hepburn. I mean, it's really weird. Yeah. It's like, yeah. at our, we at least had like the starter jackets and we had, you know, Tiny Toon Adventures and like yes, yeah, our, yeah. our generation was just a lot of Looney Tunes stuff was still in pop culture, but I'd be hard pressed for like any kids to know who the fuck like most of these characters are, except for like, I think, you know, like Tweety is still sort of out there and like. Well, the, she's a, yeah, she's an icon. Yeah. I, that's how I felt when I found out that the Animaniacs were getting a reboot. I was right. like, girl, no, nobody cares. Nobody cares anymore. Who is it for? I famously loved Animaniacs. Don't say Ira. No. I knew Listen, Ira I loved Animaniacs, you. but I haven't watched the reboot. <laughs> so. but that further proves the point. Yeah. No, it's like if there was a reboot of the band REM. It was for people who are 35 and older now, and mm. there's not much way to be acquainted with them now unless you had older brothers who told you. No, I met a toddler who was singing Losing My Religion last week. Who? Okay, I, okay, Lewis. Wow. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> you know haunted children. That's what's happening. <laughs> are, you, are you Nicole Kidman and the others? <laughs> are you in an attic? Yeah. Someone holding chimes. Haley yeah. Joel Osment was uh, Haley Joel just singing. Lewis, <laughs> what's your keep it? I cannot find the screenshot right now, but I think I have enough angst to go. Keep it to, and this is a classic thing that happens all the time on Twitter and Instagram, people posting grinder messages that are utterly benign to own the person in front of others. Just like if you're having a conversation on an app like Tinder or Grindr or something, and you within milliseconds are posting something someone else said, and it's not along the lines of, like, racist or, like, really offensive. It's just you, like, dunking on somebody. Mm. Fuck you. Like, you're, that's <laughs> super selfish. The narcissism is fucking ugly. And in this case, the other day, there was a, a hubbub online where one guy w- posted a grinder conversation, and he was greeted with, hi, handsome, or hey, handsome. And his reaction was, uh, don't talk to me like my pronouns are handsome, which, is that supposed to be comedy? Number one. Two, (laughs) yeah. And two, I will say this. Handsome, I don't say it when greeting somebody on Grindr, but it is a little quaint for me. It's a little under sexy. My argument is handsome Mm. is a word we should reserve for ring bearers, (laughs) cute dogs, and also character actresses of a certain age. What's a greeting you prefer? I always wrestle with that. You know, it's, mm. it's, you, is it, hey, handsome, hey, babe, or what's up, or hi. I mean, there's also people who say, if you say hi to them. Right. It's, mm. don't just say hi to me. It's like, oh, okay, would you, would you like to talk about Nabokov? Yeah. <laughs> just right off the bat, right off the bat. Oh, no, my, my number one fucking thing is the people who lay out all the rules there are to talk to them in their bio beforehand. I'm like, girl, I'm not like signing a contract to, so I can like engage you in some sort of witty banter anyway. Um, but I would usually go with, I mean, if I'm going for it, stud, I will say stud. Mm. This is uh, Oli- mm. Olivia Newton-John territory here that I'm getting <laughs> Uh I will just go with hey. I'll say hey there. Hey, how's it going? To indicate that I am amenable to a real conversation and not just hey, hey, yeah. dick pic, dick pic. <laughs> but I can do that too. Uh, I just... Uh, I, or I will say, hey, sexy. I like that, too. Mm. Yeah, I'm honestly disgusted by the shock that somebody's attracted to you on a dating app. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I also do not enjoy the screen grabs. Mm. Give me something shocking, girl. Yeah, a lot of the girls... have called you a monkey. It's, it's a lot of, you know, like, oh, here's a flex that I got a message. It's very a flex. It's very a flex. And yes, usually mm. the dunk, as you said, is never really funny. 
So no, I will say that a lot of people too who post grinder screenshots and are like, look at how offensive this person was to me. That person is usually being very innocuous and like having a normal human interaction, and the person posting is actually like has crazy Byzantine social skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in this case, he, like he responded with "Hi, friend," which I consider hostile. <laughs> anyway. Hey, friend. <laughs> Literally, when I greet a friend, I'm mad at. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, hey, friends. friends. Yeah. <laughs> Let's chat. <laughs> no less friendly word than friend. Well, um, my keep it this week goes to a, a birthday party <gasps> that belonged to mine or yours. Jordan Firstman. Oh, God. Here we not go. Not mine. Not mine. Not keep it to my birthday party, which kicked off Leo season two weeks early. Which didn't need to be the same day as mine. You, <laughs> you pushing it. You pushing it. Where was my invite? You was in New York, T. girl. Where was my T. invite? T. Actually, I knew you weren't here. Go ahead. <laughs> Listen. Jordan. Jordan Firstman's birthday party because... Uh, I don't know if you saw, you know, the Instagram photos that were everywhere. You know, it had all the, you know, bubbling under pop girls there. Dua Lipa, Charlie XCX, Kim Petras, Tovlo, Phoebe Bridges, Caroline Polachek, Marina and the Diamonds, Christine and the Queens. All women I love, by the way. Mm -hmm. Like, stand. Like, this is my level of, like, pop music standum. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the girls I listen to all the time. But Marina Mm -hmm. posted online that she tested positive for COVID. After already being vaccinated, wow. which we'll get into that convo, you know, about a lot of people being very over dramatic about the fact that they are getting COVID mm. when they're already vaccinated. When it's like, baby, read the fine print. It, <laughs> right. it didn't say that, like, you know, like there was you became like a COVID warrior and like destroyed it every time <laughs> it came near you. Like we get <laughs> flu vaccines and you can still get the flu, bitch. But mm-hmm. my keep it is just to listen. I know you want to throw a cute party. But do not have all these girls in the same place at once. Oh, it's unsafe. Okay? That is dangerous. <laughs> that is dangerous. Okay? Are you trying to wipe out my entire Spotify playlist? <laughs> right. A whole genre got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Hyperpop. Yeah, right. This is why there's always multiple Oscar parties, so that, like, Demi Moore can have the one where certain celebrities go to, and then, you know, exactly. Elton John can have the other one or whatever. Yeah. If you're not nominated and you're not presenting, you don't go to the award show. Okay, like the people who show up mm-hmm. to things when they don't need to be there, mm-hmm. th- let them die. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably also say Jordan Firstman is a uh, writer, comic who Ira and I have known for years in LA. Yeah, he blew up because of uh, videos he made uh, on Instagram. I want to say Ariana Grande was the first person to repost them in her stories, mm-hmm. um, and now he hangs out with people like Dua Lipa, which makes someone like me bitter. Absolutely. <laughs> See how honest we are on this podcast. Yeah, especially <laughs> considering that you know when I managed a donut store. In West Hollywood, story for another day. Yeah, what? Uh, <laughs> Inferior Donuts was that the name of the place? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Superior Donuts joke for all you uh, Tracy Letts fans. Maybe I know Tracy Letts <laughs> joke when I hear one. Okay. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're starting to bug me, Lewis. <laughs> okay. Um, which I am bitter about too because um. I feel like I've been Eve Harrington. Oh, true. <laughs> when I managed when I managed the donut mm-hmm. shop, I hired Jordan as a barista. You making employment decisions mm-hmm. about crawlers. I have to say, I love my mind. Yeah. Baby, mm-hmm. I went on vacation for a weekend and was promptly fired when I came back on Monday. 
<laughs> so Jordan Firstman, um, the only things that are related between all of us and him are Ariana Grande and donut shops. That's yes. It. I don't know. Giving It's giving strange. Donut shop and WeHo was giving strange, baby. <laughs> 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 oh, I guess also uh, Jordan did write on a season of Big Mouth, and I did as well. And if my career doesn't look like his eventually, I'm done. I'm going to quit. Okay. <laughs> if I don't get to just hang out with my favorite rappers very soon. What was the point of all this? Though yeah. I have to tell you, hanging out with that many people of that kind of like stand-up caliber really is like nervous making to me. It's I stressful. Mean, like, yeah. I mean the I, pressure to be funny, the pressure to be not mean. Yeah. In addition <laughs> to the pressure not to, you know, infect them. So. I mean, listen, because you have a part <laughs> yes, because like you hang out with them once, right? And then it's like Okay, but did I entertain them enough to hang out with me again? Mm. Mm. See? Right, right. You have to keep being good. Yeah. You're on the treadmill now. Yeah. yeah. And healthy. Yeah. Anyway, girls, check the guest list. Right. Stop going to all these parties with all these people together. I'm just worried, okay? This is like when all those girls were at Kendall Jenner's birthday party. You had like Saweetie. You had like Doja Cat. Come on. Yeah. It's nervous. Well, Save our girls. Please. Normani stayed home. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of Caroline Polachek, her latest single, Bunny as a Writer, produced by Danny L. Harl. Chef's kiss. It's everywhere. Uh, I mean, I enjoy hearing it whenever I do. Yeah. So I think that's our show. I think it is. <laughs> Good job, everyone. Thank you to Rebecca Carroll for being here. Shout out to um, Cancers. Your season's over. I didn't have fun. Okay, girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> And the jacket that Ira is wearing will be in our Keep It Merch shop. So make sure that you go buy that or don't buy that. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller will sue. If you guys want it. She will sue. Uh, <laughs> how am I ever going to get Sarah Michelle Geller on Keep It Now when someone sends her the audio? <laughs> <laughs> She's somewhere casting spells on you. <laughs> Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston, and our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is me, Ira Madison III. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. And hey, stay safe out there. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.